Hello and welcome to episode 32 of Blokeology, evidence-based health, fitness and lifestyle. So I'm Dr. Ewan Lawson and uh, show notes for today's episode can be found as usual at blokeology.io forward slash 032. Today I've got an interview with Brendan Stubbs from King's College um, London. Brendan's got a really interesting background. He's actually a physiotherapist by training, but really now he's very much a research physio, uh, research physiotherapist and one that has uh, dived in great deal of depth into the evidence around mental health and physical activity and exercise to some extent. Though we do talk about the difference between physical activity and exercise, at least in terms of what researchers mean by that. Um, and he's got a great deal of experience with systematic reviews and he understands the evidence incredibly well about the benefits of physical activity on mental health, whether it's very severe mental health and very serious problems such as schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, or whether it's at the lower levels of anxiety and depression that huge numbers of the population have difficulties with. Uh, so we'll get on with that in a minute. Um, I just wanted to remind you that you can, of course, if you want to get more involved with the podcast, sign up for the newsletter that I send out every fortnight, uh, the Journal of Blokeology. It's just a short email with some nuggets of clinical uh, information and research that will hopefully help you go about living an evidence-based approach to your health and fitness and lifestyle as well, of course. Um, I sent the most recent one out this week. Uh, and that was, um, I mostly concentrated on the health effects of um, the clocks going back, the, the change in the uh, daylight savings that occurred just this last weekend. Um, and there is some evidence that it can upset our circadian rhythms a little and the impact that that has on our health. It, I mean, it's, it, it's hard to unpick this kind of very small effect. And I'm not sure that the evidence is completely convincing. There does seem to be some suggestion that some of it can just be related to behavior change. When the clocks go back, we actually become less likely to exercise and less likely to be outdoors doing activities. And that in itself can have an effect, of course, on our mental well-being. And that's exactly the kind of thing that Brendan talks about um, in, the, uh, in the interview today. So if you want to sign up for that, you can find that at blokeology.io forward slash journal. I normally send it out on a Tuesday lunchtime. Um, I actually managed to send it out at quarter past midnight this week due to a um, slight hiccup in my scheduling um, as opposed to quarter past 12 in the afternoon. Um, but normally it goes out at lunchtime on a every other Tuesday. Um, so that's there if you would like to get involved and I'd be great to have you um, to link up with you with that. Coming back to Brendan. So Brendan's a research physiotherapist with this special interest in mental health. So the first thing I asked Brendan was just to tell us a little bit more about how a physiotherapist ended up being a researcher with a particular interest in mental health. Yes, well, um, it was really, I ended up here through a number of different accidents which have worked out for the best, really. Um, after I qualified as a, as a physiotherapist, um, in all honesty, I hadn't really linked or found an area which I was really, really passionate about. I'd, I'd, have, I'd have done a few core areas. Um, and I, didn't, I intended not doing too much once I qualified. Um, but my mum was a head pharmacist at a big psychiatric hospital. And, uh, and in the summer, when I was sitting around planning on not doing too much, she said, why don't you go and talk to the head of physio at this big psychiatric hospital? So I went in and started talking to her. And, um, and before I knew it, I was having a job interview. Uh, and I went to go and, and, and start working in this big mental health hospital, and I just found it absolutely fascinating. Just the 
the interesting uh, patients that I've started working with, also the opportunities, um, the complexity, but also the holistic nature. And at that time in the early 2000s, um, not many people were thinking or talking about physical health. And, and I remember a consultant quite early on saying, why have we got a physiotherapist here um, in, in, in my early, early days? Um, and immediately as a sort of someone would, would want to do, I tried to look at what is the evidence for what I was doing in those particular areas at that particular time, thinking I need some help because I'm not sure what I'm doing in this particular environment. Um, and I found there wasn't very much evidence really at that particular time. And that was, I was quite worried and anxious about that. And then I was sort of quickly supplanted with perhaps I can do something about this. And I had no research training really, but um, I went on a bit of a journey then. And, and after that sort of clinical time, I did some other more core physiotherapy issues, working in some general hospitals, doing some sports physiotherapy, that type of thing. Um, but I always seemed to come back to mental health services. Um, and that was kind of my path to being a, a clinician in mental health services. Yeah. So I got, there's two things that strike me immediately there that I wanted to ask about is, what training did you get in appraising the evidence as a physio and what training did you get as a physio in mental health did you get anything at all or was it all just very new to you at that point in our final year of our physiotherapy degree we could pick a number of different op optional modules to do and actually the mental health module and, and i quite enjoyed it at that particular time i don't remember a great deal from it um but I, I did quite enjoy that module so that was something which was optional and we generally didn't learn anything about mental health it was all about muscles bones tendons and we talked mm. a bit about the biopsychosocial approach but not about mental health and specifically mental illness uh, and sadly that's something which is not massively changed um over the last 10 or 15 years although it is changing now so the short answer is i didn't get very much training whatsoever most of it was on the on the job per se um, and I came into mental health services really with a physical health hat on and, and being someone who worked, looked at the world with physical eyes. Um, so that was very interesting. And around research and evidence, um, I wasn't a very studious student. Um, so I didn't particularly apply myself within any of the research modules, which we did. And I didn't really have any real uh, great understanding of, of, of good research or how to do research at that particular time. And... I got into doing research through very simple things in the first instance. And I had a number of senior clinicians or people who were working who had some experience of doing research who said, um, who I just went with enthusiastic ideas and said, I'd like to look at this particular issue. I've noticed it's a problem in my practice. Will you help me? And some very patient and experienced people gave their time and helped me along the way to try and navigate the world of of research and I then went on to do some subsequent research training and I slowly got better at being able to do research. Yeah it's, uh, and I, the, the question is not particularly loaded in terms of where you got it from because I think I was chatting to Andre Tomlin from the Mental Elf just a few weeks ago and actually he highlighted that back in the early back in the 90s when I trained in the early 2000s still actually that whole critical and evidence-based approach to any kind of medicine or a, a kind of therapeutic or clinical approach wasn't necessarily the norm anyway. So you're particularly unusual in that you've kind of then embraced that, obviously, as the years have gone by. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't really remember getting much uh, sort of research training around being critical. 
Um, and that's something which has just developed over time, really. Yeah. Out of interest, how do you think, you mentioned that you don't think physiotherapists do that so well nowadays. I know you still work clinically. Um, how do how do how do physiotherapists keep up to date? Most of them. How do they go about? And I know because a lot of them work in perhaps in uh, sometimes more in, across public and private kind of uh, scenarios as well, rather than just being purely NHS. But how does your average physio go about keeping up to date with the, the kind of the most recent changes? Well, I've got a very specific and biased worldview because I sit in mental health services. Yeah. Um, although many of my my friends and compatriots are outside of mental health services. Um, and I think the training for physiotherapist has improved. We, we, we always talk about the biopsychosocial model and the importance of psychological uh, you know, in health and risk factors for, for, for what we work with. But the training on, on mental health and mental illness has is, is slowly improved. Um, so there's a number of universities across London where I do a few cameo lectures about mental health, physiotherapy, mental illness. Um, so how do physiotherapists keep up to date? Well, there's the usual typical conferences which people go to, uh, the various journal articles where we try and raise awareness or any other forum where people will sort of engage. And I think many more people are talking about mental health generally. And that's definitely filtered through into physiotherapy, which is, which is fantastic as well because it's much more in everyone's conscience in the public anyway. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that um, led me to get in contact with you, Brendan, was your recent paper in um, European Psychiatry. Um, which was all about um, physical activity as a treatment for severe mental illness. Um, and it was a matter of you. And I wonder if you could just talk through a little bit about what you did there, what was involved in a few of your findings. Sure, absolutely. So this was a really big project um, undertaken by colleagues across many different countries across Europe, um, you know, physiotherapists, psychiatrists, psychologists, um, epidemiologists. And... Uh, together as a team, we really wanted to look at what is the top tier of evidence for physical activity and exercise as an intervention for severe mental illnesses, specifically people with schizophrenia, bipolar disorder and major depressive disorder. So we specifically looked at systematic reviews of randomized control trials in each of those conditions for any health outcome. So we did comprehensive searches of all of the major databases to try and find those. We identified those and then we critiqued them and extracted the main findings and considered the limitations and the positive aspects from within each of each of those. And we then compiled them within the paper within the uh, it's, uh, it's called the European Psychiatric Association Journal. So what we specifically found when we looked at that is that there's good evidence that aerobic and also resistance exercise. So aerobic exercise is exercise which increases your heart rate or resistance exercise can be where you're pushing against a force that could be in the gym or using your own body weight. So that type of exercise can have a, you know, a good effect on reducing people with uh, clinical depression, symptoms of, of, of depression. And also within schizophrenia, there's good evidence that aerobic exercise over the course of 12 to 14 weeks can reduce people's mental health symptoms, specifically uh, negative symptoms and improve cognition as well. And treatments for cognition in people with schizophrenia are relatively limited. So that's quite an exciting finding in itself. And there's some tentative evidence also that physical activity and exercise can improve 
some physical health uh, outcomes and markers as well, such as people's waist circumference, uh, people's body mass index also. Yeah, it's well worth pointing. It's, there's a, well, there's a few different things there to unpack, isn't there? But one of the, one thing, well, there's two things I must remember to come to. One is about just telling us about the difference between physical activity and exercise, because I saw a comment on a LinkedIn post about your paper that someone had asked about that specifically. I think hadn't they? They just perhaps if, if you're not involved in research into this, that people do differentiate between phys- physical activity and exercise in terms of the research. Yes, they do, and people within the physical activity field get quite irked. Um, yeah. talk about one or the other and get them mixed up but essentially just to clarify physical activity is by definition any bodily movement which increases energy expenditure so that could be going for a walk that could be doing your housework that could be going up the stairs that could be something uh, more vigorous um, such as running so that is it. Any, any bodily movement which increases energy expenditure. Now exercise is a subset of that which is a structured uh, form of physical activity with the specific intention to improve your fitness or your health. So that could be something like running, going to the gym, uh, potentially doing yoga, that type of thing. So it's a very structured type of physical activity and a subset within it. Yeah. Um, and it's probably an important point because I think a lot of people, they just have this instinctive reaction if they've not been, you know, they hated physical exercise at school or they weren't a runner, that they sort of think to themselves, as soon as they hear physical activity, they, sometimes they have this as mental association with running or programs that they just can't do. But physical activity is really not about that at all. Absolutely not. And exercise is, is quite an emotive word, as you say. I mean, if you've had positive experiences growing up and, you know, perhaps in PE, um, or, or other forms that exercise is, you know, is a fine, you know, word to, to be used. But for other people, or for many people who've not had positive experiences for exercise, um, whether that be in, in, in school or childhood, or perhaps you weren't very good at a particular sport, it can really be a barrier if you talk about exercise per se. Yeah. So very, whenever I talk with, uh, patients or anybody else, we really just talk about being physically active and getting people moving and stressing that, there's really good evidence that light forms of physical activity, going for a walk and, and that type of thing, can have really beneficial impacts for your physical and also for your mental health. And a lot of the government recommended guidelines are really loaded up towards focusing on achieving moderate or vigorous physical activity. Mm. So moderate physical activity would be where you're getting quite breathless. So perhaps you're going for a brisk walk or running and you're finding it difficult to breathe. And vigorous physical activity where it's more intense is where you're really struggling to talk when you're doing the exercise because you're getting out of breath. But light activity is, uh, you know, beneath that threshold. But there's really good evidence that light activity has positive physical and mental health benefits as well. Yeah, I sometimes think it needs a whole rebranding, um, sometimes running out. I was, I was at a talk um, at the Royal College of GPs um, at conference a couple of weeks ago and the park run were there and Chrissy Wellington was there, who's obviously an absolute legend um, and probably one of the most underrated or undervalued, underappreciated athletes in British history in terms of what she's done. But she, in many ways, she's a, she seems like a lovely, warm, generous sort of person and very open. And um, But they almost need to rebrand themselves as park movement, I thought at the time, because they just kind of, the, the run bit just puts some people off. And what they do is very much just about getting people moving. But that that run thing has got a few toxic associations for some folk. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That, you know, the word run again, I mean, many people love that, but for other people, running may seem quite far off from what you've done or perhaps you've had negative experiences as well. But really, when we want people to be more active or active ourselves, just getting starting is often the, the, the key part. Once you just begin to do a little bit or even a light amount, then you can move along that activity continuum, but increasing your volume or your amount, but also the intensity as well. And I suppose one of the things I, and I think about it is you don't have to move along that continuum either. There are, there's a, it's a kind of a dose-dependent relationship with physical activity. There is You tend to do more and it all, perhaps until you get to the very extremes, but you do more, it tends to be better for you. But I think some people think that at some point they're going to get, as soon as they start doing something, at some point they're going to get um, shoehorned into doing some running. It's an inevitable it's an inevitable consequence of exercise. And that's not really the case either, though, is it? No, no, absolutely not. Um, not that I would necessarily stop people from it because I'm a big, you know, I like running and I'm a big fan of it. So the, yeah. the, one of the things that's really interesting about the severe mental illness in this review in European psychiatry was that obviously there are these, you mentioned a little bit about waist circumference and physical activity benefits. And I guess that's perhaps that makes, that was the second thing I was going to say was that that's perhaps one of the reasons that these people are getting so much benefit is because their physical health is pretty sorely neglected as well. Absolutely. And we're, we're really concerned about the physical health of people with severe mental illness. And, and that's for really good reason, um, because there's really robust and large data which demonstrates that, you know, approximately 70% of the early deaths of the 10 to 20 year early premature mortality is attributed due to potentially preventable physical health conditions such as heart disease or respiratory conditions. And we know generally that physical activity is good to sort of protect against the emergence of these issues and also to manage them as well. So when we consider that, then there's really important evidence for the central role of physical activity. So there was one of the slides which I really like putting up um, when I'm talking to psychiatrists and mental health audiences is a slide from uh, a paper from the BMJ in 2013 from NACI and Enidis. Um, it was a meta-epidemiological study where they essentially looked in the general population, comparing the quality of evidence for common pharmacological interventions such as statins, ACE inhibitors, beta blockers, versus physical activity for the prevention and management of core uh, cardiovascular diseases and like diabetes also. And what they broadly found in a really nice forest plot is when you look at stroke, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, in the general population, which is our starting point for people with mental illness, that physical activity is broadly as effective in preventing and managing these leading causes of early death in this population. And that's our starting point of equity for people with severe mental illness. Yeah, gosh, that's really interesting. I'm, I'll try and dig out that paper and put a link into the show notes as well. So the slide you show tend to be the forest plot one. Yeah, there's a really nice forest plot within there, which yeah. really, you know, it's a fantastic uh, piece. Um, yeah, in the BMJ. Well, it's kind of it's an area that is kind of blossoming. I think maybe it's time has come. It feels a little bit like that. It's time has come in terms of physical activity and lifestyle interventions as opposed to this kind of massive bias we've had towards medications and pharmacology over the past few decades yeah and it's really exciting um, uh, to see this complete shift and, it, and, it, and again it's nothing particularly new that we're saying i mean if you if you look at hippocratic oath and what hippocrat said is you know walking is man's best medicine so this is something which has been said right from the, the you know the birth of of medicine and healthcare per se, the importance of nutrition and also physical activity. 
but the evidence and also, you know, importantly, the acceptability um, widely amongst people about how important this can be in the prevention and management of physical and mental health issues has really, really accelerated. So it's a really exciting time. It is, and I guess I, I, absolutely. And there's, I know there's things like there's a, there's certainly doctors have involved in like a lifestyle medicine movement and things like that, and probably not just doctors as well, but healthcare professionals. One of the things that bothers me slightly, and I hope we come to grips with quite quickly, is that there's a slight risk that it leaves behind it worsens health inequalities because it it slightly preferentially favors those who already exercise and already have got some lifestyle advantages perhaps or that middle class if you like who who are already exercising and what i like about your work and particularly the severe mental illness is they're almost inevitably on the wrong end of that health inequalities divide and actually designing interventions or helping people get into physical activity in those groups is going to be a really key part of moving this forward absolutely uh, it's you know such a key point and that's really uh, why the the work, particularly for people with schizophrenia, are often you know quite socially sort of you know in, in deprived areas, is, is so important. So one of the interesting interventions which we've done recently has been uh, health coaching and a walking intervention, which is a feasibility randomised controlled trial, where we've been uh, randomising people with psychosis or other severe mental health conditions to receive health coaching fortnightly an education session about the benefits of an active lifestyle, giving people pedometers or encouraging them to use other uh, monitoring devices and inviting people to a weekly walking group over 16 weeks. And we've been, uh, you know, really, really pleasantly surprised by how well people have engaged within the intervention. And also we've seen some encouraging changes in people's objective measures of sedentary behaviour and physical activity. But anecdotally, some of the really interesting um facts or you know principles which have come from this is that when we deliver the education session for, for these people with severe mental health conditions it's it's really surprising just how unaware uh, people are about the benefits of an active lifestyle and just how you know changes in physical activity can improve your physical and mental health so I think it's absolutely right that these key messages are not getting to the most undeserved uh, undeserved uh, populations um, so it's really good to develop interventions to particularly uh, you know encourage those isolated uh, groups yeah yeah those underserved populations they're really kind of I, I, I guess one of the things I think about as well is that um, there's, there's two, another, I've got two things. I'm always thinking of two things rather than just one thing. My two things were that it's a curse of knowledge that we know that physical exercise is good for you. We hang around with healthcare professionals, physios and doctors who know that and we assume that everybody else knows it, that it's self-evident truth. But it isn't necessarily the case, as you described there, that everybody, it's just that assuming that everybody knows what you know, and it's simply not the case. Absolutely. And I really, really noticed that within the, the context of you know, people with severe mental health con- conditions as well. But even, even in the general population, there's a lot of confusing, conflicting evidence around lifestyle interventions and how good it is for you and why it may help. Um, so, you know, because all of the time there's, there's, there's new research coming out and then by the time it gets reported in the media, is it, you know, it loses its original message. Um, so there's lots of uh, conflicting and confusing messages. One of the most uh, sort of confused uh, pieces of research, which, was, which went down absolutely phenomenally, was a large study conducted in the Lancet Poetry quite recently, um, earlier in the summer, and it looked at 
Um, it looked at self-report physical activity uh, levels in uh, 1.2 million Americans, and then it looked at generic mental health symptoms cross-sectionally. And the authors did some really clever analyses looking at different types of physical activity and uh, different modes of physical activity and how this related to mental health symptoms generically and not in any particular mental health conditions. But what they came out with it is then try to look at this specific cutoff and saying if you go above this particular cutoff, then you don't have any mental health benefits. And the way this got misinterpreted within the media is that if you go above this threshold, then it's harmful for your mental health. So the next day I did a talk on physical activity and mental health and pulled up some of the, the, the main headlines from this. And some newspapers had physical activity is good for your mental health. Some had say, don't go over this because you'll harm your mental health. And it's just from this one research study, which had many, many limitations within it, where you just get this such confusing message within the literature. And, and that paper was extremely popular, but it was absolutely ravaged with a number of limitations uh, within the, the data collection, also the analysis. Yeah, it's a real problem. It's that kind of the media's obsession. And, you know, I understand where they're coming from, of boiling everything down to a soundbite. And that research, you know, people don't tend to see that research is this enormous kind of um, accumulation of studies and, you know, and over a long period of time and many different facets until we get to something that might be approximating the best advice or the truth if you want to go down that sort of philosophical sort of strand but the um and that's a it's a real and i think you're right it plays into people who just feel a little bit reluctant about exercise or physical activity generally they hear slightly conflicting messages and it just pushes them away absolutely um one of them so my second thing i had two things i better remember to do the second thing was i i've done quite a lot of work with injecting drug users who fall into that sort of i think probably not quite the same severe mental illness category but they certainly have some appalling well they there's interesting parallels there because they have appalling the addiction problems they have appalling um, physical health problems now and most of those that are dying young are dying now because of physical health consequences of their injecting drug use whether that's respiratory or vascular cardiovascular whether it's related to damage to their like chronic venous insufficiency in their legs or other things um and I, I, there's not enough i'm just saying there's not nearly enough work in actually promoting physical activity i don't think your study looked at these people at all but have you, are you aware of any specific meta reviews or meta analyses looking at physical activity in those groups you, it's probably a slightly unfair question because i haven't you may it's off the top of your head whether you know of any no it's it's a really really important area and, and obviously there's a, there's a huge overlap between people with mental health comorbidity and and people who are you know heavily involved in injecting drug users yes I mean, we did they, um, we did a paper in the British Journal of Sports Medicine looking at people with a diagnosed alcohol use disorder, mm. which I take not an injecting drug problem. And we found some tentative evidence that it may improve people's uh, uh, depressive symptoms and also their fitness and possible physical health. But it was very tentative because it is very early days. When it comes to in injecting or harder drug users, there's not a great deal of evidence as far as I'm aware, but there is a piece of research happening at the University of Plymouth where they are collating all of the evidence um, at the moment to have a look at can physical activity help people with substance use disorders to improve a range of different outcomes, but have not completed their project yet. So I don't know what the answer is. Yeah. I mean, I, one doesn't make, want to like make any assumptions, but I'd be surprised if there aren't significant benefits, but we'll, we'll have to wait and see. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, gosh, so where do you think things are going next, Brendan, in terms of the kind of these, you know, physical activities being shown to benefit? One of the things I wanted to ask about were 
with physical activity, was that tended to be for people, was that part of structured programs generally, or was it more self-directed? In, in what sense, sorry? Well, I guess in terms of that, they were put onto a formal program, you know, the studies that you had and you put, teased the information out, were they put into formal programs of, you know, of eight weeks of walking based activity or 16 weeks or was it, or, or was there in some way, did they, did they try to, was it left to the individuals? Because obviously clearly they're going to have motivational issues at points due to their mental illness. Yeah, quite. So when you look in the depression literature, for instance, uh, you know, dropout is an issue because part of the core component of the illness is a, is a loss of motivation, lack of interest, apathy and all of those type of things as well. Um, so we have previously looked at what predicts dropout and adherence for exercise in people with depression. And we've done a similar thing in people with uh schizophrenia as well and what we tend to find is that professionally supervised interventions which are structured tend to result in less dropout as well um, and also interventions which are delivered at a moderate or lower intensity physical activity result in less dropout um, within depression and we find something quite similar within schizophrenia as well is that the person overseeing the program has a really important um, aspect and also uh, programs that have a motivational component um, and really get people engaged can predict people's longer term adherence. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. I get I, one of the. Th- I, I, I can imagine that must be the case. So what we really need to see is much more in the way of you know. Uh, so from a GP perspective, it's just trying to get access to those kind of schemes because they just don't exist at the moment. You know, across the board. No, and it's just you know, there's pockets of really good practice happening. Um, but it's again, it's trying to get some coordinated picture of what's happening, where who can access those particular programs is always tricky. Um, so, yeah, there is definitely no uh, sort of cohesive way where everyone's trying to address this. Yeah. Um, can I ask you a little bit about this? I saw another paper and I was looking through PubMed, Brendan, and I saw another paper. And there was one, it's, it's a slightly different topic, but I was really intrigued. I don't know what your involvement with this would have been. It was the one about um, association between TV viewing, sitting time, and insomnia in Brazilian adolescents, which seems like slightly random, but I, that was that yourself that was involved with that? Yes, it was. Yeah, um, and I don't. I, I, to be honest, it's a little bit unfair. It's just be, it was published relatively recently, but I, I've got the results in front of me. If you can't remember the, the exact findings, but there were some interesting findings from that as well. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we did this with some Brazilian colleagues quite quite recently, looking at adolescents. So we actually had a really large sample size. So there was over hundred thousand adolescents, and we were able to look at. People's sedentary behaviour, and that was categorised in time spent TV viewing and also sitting time more generally. And then we also looked at people's physical activity levels. And, and what we found was that um, higher levels of sitting time were associated with a higher risk of in, insomnia in, in both boys and also girls. Um, uh, and a sitting time of over four hours a day was associated with uh, a higher risk of insomnia. Um, uh, but there's also some evidence for lower levels of, of sedentary behaviour or sitting time and TV viewing potentially being associated with insomnia as well. Um, so there's some quite interesting findings which we really want to unpick within that. I should add within this that uh, the data is cross-sectional, so it's taken at one snap point. So we, we can't really infer which way the directions of the relationships are going. So clearly we need to do a lot more to try and understand you know, what's coming first and, you know, how can we do something about it? But it does seem to be some overlap between what you're doing in the daytime in terms of TV viewing 
um, sitting around and not moving and your risk of insomnia when you go to try and sleep at night. Yeah, so we, we, you're absolutely right. We've got to be careful, haven't we, that it isn't the fact that people are not sleeping, which is even leaving them feeling less motivated or not able to, uh, sitting around more in which direction that's going, not necessarily causal. Um, I would imagine it's kind of, you know, from a parent of a, not a Brazilian adolescent, a British adolescent, <laughs> that, um, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a leap and an assumption that it's going to be much the same, that it's, um, it's hard work getting them off the TV and that kind of, I'm going to be going home and telling them about the study tonight. Yeah. <laughs> just to um yeah but he's probably sick to be honest i need to find new and original ways to tell teenage children how not to watch telly because um, i'm running out of options no and there, there, there is a wider piece of, 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 of literature looking at tv viewing is associated with a with an adverse range of outcomes for, for adolescents as well um including some physical health outcomes um and also some mental health outcomes as well so generally it's viewed as as TV viewing time is is a, is a particular behaviour which is not associated with positive mental health. But also within the context of TV viewing, it's often accompanied by other unhealthy behaviours as well, such as snacking, eating, mm. uh, not very healthy snacks as well. So it you know, often comes with other things which are not particularly helpful. Yeah, I might be capturing that. I do, I, there is, there's a plausible sort of biological mechanism here, though, isn't there, for, you know, that if it's this TV time, and the sitting time is affecting your sleep. Sleep is such an important factor in kind of mental health, physical health, all those other things that that could be the mechanism. And there's 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 been a couple of really nice studies, randomised controlled trials, and um, which is helping to try and understand the causal relationship between sedentary behaviour and mental health. Um, so there was a paper in the British Journal of Psychiatry in 2015, um, which the intervention instead of being something helpful such as, you know, let's give people physical activity or give people a medication. The intervention was um, be more sedentary, do not move, and the control group carried on as usual. And this was people in their early 20s, free from any mental or physical health comorbidity, uh, and this was the intervention for four weeks. And what they found over this four-week time period, this randomised control trial, is the uh, these people who didn't have any mental or physical health comorbidity started to get uh, increased in, in, in their self-reported stress, but there was a change in some inflammatory markers as well, particularly into leukin-6 um, from this group who were all of a sudden becoming more sedentary. And we know from lots of other people's work that uh, when you look at some mood disorder, particularly depression, there is this heightened inflammatory response as well, and, and another randomised control looking at sedentary behaviour has found a similar thing in people's PHQ-9 scores. So people are told to be more sedentary. The intervention, the randomised control trial, people's PHQ-9 scores go up. Uh, you stop the intervention, let them carry on as normal, and it goes down compared to the control group as well. Yeah, so those who don't know PHQ-9 is the, like the, the um, I think it's patient health. It just stands for it. It's, just, it's, it's a series of questions asking, to, tend to identify people with depression. Yeah, sorry for speaking jargon. No, that's all right. I didn't. I've done it myself many occasions. So, did you say the British Journal of Psychiatry that paper where they made them more sedentary? Twenty fifteen, did you say? I'm gonna, I'm gonna dig that out. That is, I'm absolutely astonished by that in some ways because the, you know, if that was a pill which was because of the evidence that shows ever, exercise is quite good for you, physical activity is quite good for you, I should say, that they allowed a group to be more sedentary. It's almost like I'm not surprised that wasn't unethical. Yeah, yeah, quite. Quite. Um, um, that's a, that's so, remarkable. 
It is. It is. So it's a very, very interesting study which people have, uh, have have looked at within that. It goes to try and understand some of the underpinning mechanisms. The title of that paper is "The Effect of Experimentally Induced Sedentariness on Mood and Psychobiological Response to Mental Stress." Yeah, gosh, that's a lovely paper. That one I hadn't come across that before. I'm I'm going to. I'll, I'll 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 definitely link to it in the show notes. So I'm going to dig it up and have a good read. Because there's, 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 there's quite a lot of observational data looking between inactivity and sedentary behaviour and being a risk factor for the onset of mental health issues. But because of this being a randomised controlled trial, it enables us to make causal inferences mm. about the intervention and adds to the observational data, but also it looks at mechanisms within it, which you know, goes to join together some of the dots around, um, you know, what is potentially underpinning these beneficial impacts. Yeah. Gosh, a good one. So, Brendan, I think um, I've probably taken up enough of your time. I, I was going to ask you, um, where can we find out more about your work? Where are you, where are you online? Where would be a good place to catch up with you? Oh, well, that's great. Thank you. And so um, I, I'm a, I try and tweet quite regularly. Um, I'm at Brendan Stubbs. Uh, and my name's spelled B-R-E-N-D-O-N-S-T-U-B-B-S. So I tend to tweet quite a bit. And then also recently I've uh, delved into Instagram as well, trying to get out and reach to a, a different audience of people when I'm Brendan.Stubbs is my Instagram tag. And if anybody's interested in any of the research papers which have been talked about or just have any questions or comments or feedback, I'm really happy to take any emails as well. And my, my email is brendan.stubbs at kcl.ac.uk. Uh, Brendan, that's it. That's really generous of you. And um, I'll make sure we get all that on the um, show notes. But thank you so much for speaking to us. Thank you so much. Okay, well, thanks for listening. You can find the full show notes at www.blocology.io. Uh, you can also sign up for the newsletter, the Journal of Blocology at www.blocology.io forward slash journal. Sign up and I'll make sure that I send you the Healthy Bloke Action Plan. It would be enormously helpful if you've enjoyed the show, if you've got anything out of it, if you could pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review or just leave a rating, that would be incredibly helpful. And any feedback is very welcome. And so you can leave comments, send email, or make contact via Twitter, Facebook, and the usual social media channels all of which can be found at blocology.io. Thanks again. Mm-hmm.